My name is Joanne Hegmeyer, and I am speaking as a guest this morning. I was excited to bring you a good word today, especially because my whole family is here. And, and this, is, this doesn't happen too often for Dave and I, and so it's pretty exciting. And then I read um, the verses that we were going to tackle today, and I, I reassessed how excited I was. <laughs> Oh, God, please take care of us as we walk through your word. We want so very much to hear your voice, and we want to receive from you what you have for us. We don't uh, want to go uh, to the right or to the left of what it means. We want to stay right in the center of what it means. So we, help, we ask for your help and for your Holy Spirit and for the great power that you give your word. May it work its good work deep inside us. Change us to be more like you. Amen. Amen. So this is Greatness Reimaged. Uh, and we're going to talk about what does it really mean to be great. So this is the outline. Basically, we're going to talk about the cross first. We're going to talk about um, who's the greatest. Then we're going to kind of explore what it means to be the least. And then we're going to talk about salt. So that gives you a basic idea of what we're going to do. And uh, so while we're thinking about those four things in these verses, let me just ask you, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? I just want you to think about that. When you were a kid, I want you to think about what you thought you'd be or what you wanted to be when you grew up. Now I want you to think about, okay, just think about that for a minute. What did your parents want you to be? Is there a match? I mean, for some of you there was, for some of you not, okay? Did, did you have a sense of destiny as a kid? You just knew something would happen or you would be something or whatever? Okay, let me ask you this. Um, what about when you were a kid and you thought about stuff that you believed with your whole heart? Things about yourself that would be true when you grew up. I'll tell you uh, the three things that I knew without doubt would be true about me when I grew up. I knew that I would be tall. I knew that I would look like Barbie. And I knew that I would get to wear high heels. So one out of three. That's all I got. But I knew it with my whole heart. And then I grew up, and those beliefs didn't really work out. There are other things we can just believe. We, we can believe as a kid that we're always going to have a clean house. That was another thing I believed. That didn't turn out either. Um, I'll never get hurt again. And I'll just determine that, that I'm going to make that belief come true. How about this one? Um, I will always make my own decisions. No one else is going to tell me what to do once I grow up. There are a lot of things that we can believe as kids or that we just believe are true even as adults, and they drive us, those beliefs and dreams, a lot more than we realize, and that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see how what the disciples dreamed about and really believed with their whole hearts was true drove them a lot more than they realized as they were following Jesus. So let's just recap. Um, in, In just one chapter, we've been... Uh, figuratively and physically at the top of a tall mountain where there was this transcendent experience of seeing Jesus' glory revealed, and then he's discussing uh, what's going to happen, prophecy basically, with Elijah and Moses. And then we descended figuratively and physically into a valley, into the chaos of disciples who, who couldn't do what they'd been doing, which was to drive out demons. There was a demon-possessed boy. There was a a distraught and panicked father. There was an angry crowd. So from transcendence to chaos. And that all happened in one chapter. And so Jesus, remember, he pulled them away. 
And evidently there was a house nearby. They went in the house and, and he explained, okay, this is what was happening. And now Mark picks up the narrative again here in verse 30. So let's read it together. They went out from there and passed through Galilee. He, meaning Jesus, did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But here's the kicker. They did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, the way that Mark tells this story, it feels like this is all happening on the same day. They climbed a mountain, transfiguration, they descended into the valley, chaos, uh, possession, so on, uh, free the boy, get inside the house, talk about what's happening, now let's go on up to Capernaum. That's how it reads. And, you know, so let's, we can take it straight up. There's no sense of there being a long time in between all that. Jesus was intent on taking his disciples on a secret route through Galilee, because they're going to Peter's house. That's a picture of Peter's actual house today. And it's in the region of Capernaum, because he wanted to have this intensive one-on-one time with them to prepare them for what was coming. And at least on three disciples' minds would have been God's voice that they just heard that morning, or maybe the day before, which said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. How many of you have have hoped or wished that God would just come out and talk to you and tell you what you need to know? They got that privilege. He told them what to do. So at least on three disciples' minds, they should have had this in their head. Listen to Jesus. And, And that meant they were to pay close attention to him, pay close attention to what Jesus said, and they were supposed to receive it, and they were supposed to believe it, and they were supposed to live it out. So here was their perfect chance. He was telling them something really important. And, and they could follow off on God's command. But they didn't understand him. Now, if they had understood him, this is what they would have gotten out of it. Greatness comes in giving your life. That's a truth that Jesus was saying. Did it happen? Yeah. Just the chapter before, so chapter 8, Jesus talked very plainly about dying, and then he explained to his disciples, if you want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, they'll lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, they'll save it. But see, the disciples didn't understand that. And they were too afraid to ask for help. Now, that's interesting. Why were they too afraid? Well, we're going to find out in the next sentence. Then they came to Capernaum. And when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And they felt bad about that. As they were walking along, the disciples had gotten into yet another heated argument over who was going to be the most important in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's why they would argue about that. The rabbis of their day, so they grew up under this teaching, the rabbis of their day taught that there would be distinctions in heaven. And those distinctions would be based on how learned you were, how much merit or how much good you had earned in this life, and on how much God favored you. So God's special favorites were already evident because they would pray for stuff and God would make it so. So if God powerfully intervened when someone prayed, you knew that was one of God's favorites. 
Then in the Messianic age, this is what the rabbis and the Pharisees taught, God would assign booths according to rank. So if you were a favorite, you got a booth close in. If you weren't so favorite, you had to have your booth farther out. And that's why I picked this picture, because look at the guy way on the end. Who was that? Did they always make Judas Iscariot go in the back? I don't know. You know, but somebody had to be in the back, and nobody wanted to be in the back. They all wanted to be Jesus' favorite. And, you know, who was in the front? I mean, I kind of feel like that must have been Peter, but I don't know. But are you beginning to get the picture of what was going on here? During Jesus' ministry so far, three disciples had been consistently invited to witness Jesus' most powerful miracles. You guys remember who they were? You can spit them out. That's not rhetorical. Anybody know? Peter, James, and John. All right, so we're just going to pretend. Peter, James, and John. They're always in the front. They always get to see the good stuff. These are the same three disciples that got to go up the mountain to see Jesus transfigured. The other nine disciples may have felt like they were left holding the bag. Who are we, chopped liver? We don't get to see the miracles. We don't get to see Jesus transfigured. Uh, they may have felt like they weren't the favorites. Or, or even worse, they couldn't even cast out demons now. Like what was going on with their powers, their special powers. That, that's a bad feeling. And there they were trying to do something for Jesus while Jesus was off with his special favorites. You guys, can you, can you, can you get into that? All right. Jealousy. Envy, feeling underappreciated, unrecognized, pushed aside, run right over. Or maybe even among those three, maybe one or another felt threatened. Because we know for a fact that James and John went right up to Jesus and said, can we have your right hand and your left hand? And there's Peter. What do you think he felt like when they said that? Well, can I have the front? I mean, this is what it was. This is how it was. Think about the times that you have felt envious or jealous or pushed aside or left holding the bag because someone else is more successful or more popular or more, you know, whatever it is that you wanted, but they have it. Think about the times that you felt bad because someone else was commended for something that you actually also do well, but you didn't get the commendation they did. Or they get praised for something that actually you do better but they got the praise, what that feels like. In fact, here's what I'm thinking was happening. The disciples had a belief system, we'll go into this in just a minute, that prevented them from understanding what Jesus was saying about betrayal, about being killed, and even more mysterious, about being raised from the dead, even though he'd raised people from the dead. In their minds, Jesus was bringing in This messianic age of glory and power, of of justice and victory, of of righteous rule and the righteous kingdom and the unrighteous, they're going to finally just, we're going to get rid of them. We're going to punish them forever. They're decisively gone. And, And all of that folded into their obsession with who is going to be at Jesus' left and right hand, who is going to have their booths closed into God because the messianic kingdom, it's right now. Now, this should disturb you and me, seeing this happen, because we can get just as obsessed with something and totally miss what God is actually doing in our lives or in a particular situation. 
So what do I mean? Well, the disciples were just as swept up in all these prophecies that they'd heard all their lives about Messiah and the Messianic kingdom and the conquering king and the kingdom of God, meaning kingdom on earth, with Jerusalem as the capital and God's people as the rulers. So in in their minds, their theology had no room for Jesus on a cross. And their theology had no reason for Jesus to be raised from the dead. There was no room in their hearts that was filled with the obsession of who's the greatest. There was no room in their heads that was filled with um, dreams and promises of glory for a Messiah who was going to die at the hands of the enemy. Because you know what? That's not a conquering king. That is a loser Messiah. That's the loser guy. There's no room in their mind for that. They only knew about a winner Messiah. And all they really wanted to know was who gets to stand next to the winner. That's all they wanted to know. There was no room for anything else. Now, Jesus knew already what they'd been arguing about. So he asked them what had gotten them so heated up. Hey, guys, you know, I was in the front of the line. You guys were having a really intense discussion. What was that all about? And Mark tells us they were just too, too ashamed to admit it. They must have sensed some, somewhere in there that all that envy and jealousy and feeling threatened, that was wrong. So here's what happened. Jesus sat down. And he called the twelve. And he said to them, whoever wants to be first, do you think he had their attention when he said that? Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and he put it among them and taking it up in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Jesus was sitting down. Now, now, in his day, you know, in our day, here I am, I'm standing up, so I'm teaching you, and you're all sitting down. Well, it was opposito in that day. In that day, the rabbi sat down. That was a huge signal. I guess in, in a huge crowd, a sudden hole would, would signal something was happening. And so they'd all crowd around the, the rabbi so they wouldn't lose a word. So they knew Jesus was about to teach them something. And uh, since they were in Peter's house, I think Jesus must have called over Peter's little boy. And I think he just put his arms around him. And I think he maybe gathered that little boy into his lap. And here's what I picture in my mind's eye. I picture Peter's little boy looking at Peter and giving him a big look at me grin. You see this, Dad? I'm in the center of attention. I'm sitting on Jesus' lap. And I think all the other disciples looked at that little boy in Jesus' lap who was not just sitting next to Messiah as his prime minister, like they'd all just been arguing about, but actually cuddled up with the Messiah. I think that imagery began to do a work in their hearts, began to give them an inkling of what Jesus was talking about. And there was something that uh, the disciples, and, and us too, can learn about that child. Lack of status, simple trust, loving dependence. In that day, I mean, I remember being a kid, um, and it was hard. You never got to make up your own decisions, and uh, you never got to have your own way, or it didn't feel like it anyway. I'm sure I got my own way more than I thought. But in Jesus' day, kids literally were owned by their parents. Parents had life or death over their kids. And there were very, very few laws which protected kids in that day. Even today... Children are completely dependent on adults 
to take care of them. And so therefore, children have to be utterly trusting of their caregivers for everything, everything. Children have to arrange their lives to accommodate others. And interestingly, children have an amazing capacity, have you noticed this, to love and to forgive. I mean, they do better than us every day. And the last thing is, children are eager to learn. Now, I don't mean children are eager to go to school. Some kids are. But kids are eager to learn. They know they need to know stuff, and they don't know. Now, entering into the kingdom of God requires that same humility, to be humble like a child, to be teachable, to know that you belong to God, not standing on our own rights, being completely dependent on the Lord, utterly trusting him, knowing we're safe and secure, arranging our lives to accommodate each other and God, and being always ready to love and forgive. Now, that's the hard one, I think. So true humility, and, and that, that's another thing about children that it took me um, over 50 years to finally get. Uh, we've been made ashamed for longings that God gave us, and, and that's really a pity that we've done that to each other. When children do something exciting or wonderful, do you know what they say? You guys know what they say. What do they say? What do they say? Look at me! They're completely unselfconscious, aren't they? They want you to delight in them. And delighting in them is a good thing. But we've been grown up, we've grown up to feel ashamed of that feeling, which is really too bad. Because being utterly humble means enjoying who God made you to be, really loving it, enjoying the gifts that he's given you, and being excited to use those gifts for the glory of the kingdom, and not feeling like you've got to compare yourself to anybody else. You don't even, you're not even thinking about them. You're just thinking about the Lord and you. Look at me, God. Thank you so much for giving me this thing. I just love using it. And you know what the Lord will do? He'll beam with pride. He, he, he sings over us with joy. Because he loves seeing you grow into who you made you to be. So that's really being humble. doesn't sound like humble. Humble means, oh, shucks, no. <laughs> right? But, but that's because we know we're supposed to be ashamed of enjoying what God gave us. I, it's just so crooked. I wish we could change that. A truly humble person doesn't deny the gifts God has given them. They delight in what God is doing with those gifts. They're eager to use them for the good of others and to God's glory. There's no self-consciousness. There's no worries about who's more important, who's more prominent. Now, there's two Greek words. I'm, I'm new to Greek, but there's two Greek words for child. One is technon, and one is pedion. Technon just means child, straight up. But pedion was often used for a slave child, a slave girl or a slave boy. And that's the word that's used in Mark here, pedion. So to grow even greater in God's kingdom is really to become more and more of a humble servant. So it's upside-down world. To get higher, you have to go lower until you're serving the least of the least. So true humility doesn't think of itself really at all. True humility thinks about God and about other people. Always supportive, always loyal, always serving, hopeful, trusting. So I thought, well, what are some like things that we could think of that would help us sort of see how we're doing with that? And one of them is um, how often we say thank you. How often do you make sure other people feel appreciated? That would be one way to, uh, like a humility check. 
Of course, I suppose if you say, well, I'm really, really super humble today, you might uh, have to start over. Um, (laughs) Just thinking. Um, How often do you make sure other people don't feel neglected or looked over? Um, Instead of personal fulfillment, humility really looks for the best in other people and draws that out. Um, Those who are humble themselves, they just act in a godly manner. It comes automatic. They give prominence to God's children, and they find ways to honor them in the Lord. The the last thing that we can learn about being a child um, is that children are full of potential. And, and, and that took me a long, long time to figure that out, too, that when you're grown up, it doesn't mean your potential's all gotten used up, like this is it now, this is what you get. You're full of potential no matter how old you are because we're still God's children. There's still more. There's still more in you that God is going to mature and bring out. So who you are in God's eyes is someone who he's maturing not someone who's already made it. Now, that's another weird thing. Like, we all have to kind of jockey for position, don't we? Like, I'm, I'm wise now. Yeah, I'm competent. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good to go. Good to go. Uh, but, but then we kind of, kind of stop this process of growth, which is really too bad. Um, <clears throat> this is what I get out of this. Greatness requires humility. So what Jesus did with their flow chart was he crumpled it all up, and made a new one. And in the new flowchart, only servants get honor. Wouldn't, what would that be like at work? Like if all the servants made the most money, and the CEO like probably didn't make anything, and never got mentioned. But that is the flowchart in Christianity. If anyone sets themselves up over another person, then they would be considered least favored by God. You almost want to want Knock each other out, pulling your booth as far away as possible so that other people can flow in and put their booth next to God. That's kind of the feeling Jesus was giving. God has a great concern about what happens to the least in his kingdom. So the last kind of thing I might want to do here is when you're thinking about service, what's the thing you really feel like it's beneath you to do? You really don't want to do that. Or what are the people that you're like, yeah, I've been there, done that, I don't really want to do that again. Those people, I I really don't want to take care of them or do something for them. Uh, Not to get too much up into your business, but I do think about the people who do the things that we don't usually see, like the people who are right now with the kids in the back. That, to me, is holy work. Or the people who vacuum, that's holy work. Or the people who, like, tidy up after... Uh, we do anything, really, or set up for the potluck. That's holy work. These are high callings. Just like teaching and pastoring and eldering are high callings, so is vacuuming and washing out the toilets and taking care of the babies. That is a high calling in God's eyes. It's good work. So anyway, uh, Jesus didn't stop talking. And here we got a long part. Uh, John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you 
Now, this is where we get into the part where we're like, what? I've got to talk about this? Oh, you're kidding me. All right. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. I mean, wow. Do you suppose they got uncomfortable as Jesus was talking about this? Because he's not talking to a big crowd. He's talking to his 12 disciples, the special guys, the inside crew. That's who he's talking to. That's very uncomfortable. And here's what I think. Jesus was talking about humility, taking care of the least, and so on. I think John started feeling a little uncomfortable because he had just had this episode. Now, remember that Jesus had nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. Okay, So what does that tell us? Well, uh, I think they were loud, assertive men. Uh, I think maybe they bulldozed over people sometimes and and didn't even really realize it. Uh, What was that, James? I don't know, bumping the road. Okay. Um, I think they were passionate. They were fiery. They were powerful. And sometimes they were angry zealots in their youth. And I think John, he's already arguing about who's going to be the best guy. He knows he's going to be asking Jesus pretty soon, can I sit at your right hand? And he sees some other guy, some non-disciple. He didn't have the pin or the jacket or whatever it was. He didn't, he didn't have it. And John was like, no way, Mm-mm-mm-mm. you're not going to be exercising power in our Messiah's name and not be one of us. Forget it. I'm shutting you down. Now Jesus is talking about humility and, and taking care of the least of these. So I think he self-confessed. And, and I think Jesus said what maybe he thought Jesus was going to say. Jesus gave a promise and a warning. I think... Uh, This little boy must have been in Jesus' lap because it's not a very long speech. And I think Jesus still had his arms around him. And he said, um, in effect, you know, you really should have helped him, not hinder him. You really should have encouraged him and not shut him down. I mean, you really should have respected him and recognized he's a believer. He was doing something maybe not as great as you do it, but even offering a drink to a little one gets a reward from God. He, he really should have been commended. Furthermore, there's going to be a terrible judgment for people who do what you just did, John. Terrible judgment. Now, what he described, a millstone, like I don't know if you've seen millstones, they can be really huge, so huge and heavy they've got to be dragged by donkeys. And here's what happened. Not too long before then, the Romans had punished some insurgents in Galilee, where they were, by tying this millstone around their necks and throwing them in the Galilee. So they had this vivid image already in their minds. It was awful. It was horrifying. Jesus said, you know, really, that's, would, that would be better for you than to harm one of my little ones. And then he explained how important it is to get rid of whatever it is that's standing between you and God. Just get rid of it. That's really better. No matter how precious it is to you, that's really better to have only one hand or one eye. Now, 
that was a, a rabbi saying. Um, the hand was doing something naughty. The foot was pursuing something naughty. The eye was looking for something naughty. So it was all metaphorical, and the disciples at that time understood it. Jesus was saying, you really should just cut it out. You're better off without it, even though you really love it right now, because uh, the alternative is worse. Uh, now, we've got to deal with the word hell, right? That's in the passage. So what was going on there with that? Why is he talking to hell to the disciples? So hell, how many of you guys know what that word is in, in Greek? Do you guys know? Gehenna? Yeah, you good with that? So I'll go fast through this part. Um, Gehenna is a Greek word. It meant valley of Hinnom. And um, it was considered cursed because hundreds of years before Jesus' day, this is where the Israelites would worship Moloch, and they would sacrifice their children to Moloch in that very valley. And so King Josiah, he was horrified by this, and he shut that all down and turned it into a garbage dump. Now, uh, the garbage dump, there's the Valley of Hinnom today, uh, the garbage dump was kept burning so that disease wouldn't spread. And actually, what was happening is you'd throw everything on the city dump, burning, 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 and the Romans were like, why are we going to bury these criminals after we execute them? That's just that's so hard. Let's just throw them in the Valley of Hinnom. Those burn up. And so it came to be known as a symbol for eternal punishment. That's how that happened. And that's why Jesus would say, Gehenna. But here's the troubling part. Was Jesus saying, I mean, he's using vivid imagery to, to show his disciples how serious God is about protecting and, and, and building up his little ones. But was he saying, if you don't do this, like, you are going to go to hell? Because that would be pretty troubling if that's what Jesus was saying. And I think what he was telling his disciples, I think he was talking in a way that his disciples understood there's no way we're going to do that. Of course we'll cut off our hands and our feet and so on. We No. But the choice Jesus was making, that is the same choice that you and I have today. It's a very simple choice. How much do I love God? Or do I just not love God? Do I love this thing that's standing between me and God? Do I love that more than I love God? That's the choice. Do I love acting in this way or talking in this way or relating to people in this way or coping this way or having this thing, whatever it is? Do I love that more than I love God's people? That's the choice. And I think when you have the Holy Spirit, you always say, No, even that precious thing I don't love more than I love God or God's people. But it's still a choice. For a believer, we know God is always going to hang on to us. And in in the end, we're going to hang on to God too. But it's still important to see how grave this choice is. So I see that greatness honors the worth of every believer. We're maturing in God's word. We're not there yet, but we're maturing. And so we have a responsibility. The more we understand, the more we have a responsibility to be mindful of the way we talk to people and, and the way we treat people and the way we cope with stuff. What's more important? My feelings or their feelings? What's more important? My pleasure or their pleasure? We constantly have to think about that. I actively honor, encourage, and help people and avoid hurting people or leading someone into doing something wrong. 
Now let's talk about salt. Okay, this is the last little clip. And um, you should see my desk. I've got all these books piled on my desk. Hard sayings of Jesus. Okay, you didn't help me. How about this hard saying of Jesus? No, you didn't help me either. Um, All of them had a little piece to say about this, but let's read it together. For everyone will be salted with fire. That's confusing. Salt is good. Pardon me? Okay. Um, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? That's puzzling. Um, Have salt in yourselves. What? And be at peace with one another. Okay, how did that go together? This is just, this is tough. So let's just try and work our way through it and hope we don't make too many mistakes. Um, As strange as these words are, especially after talking about Gehenna and that horrifying fire and the worms that are alive, which, by the way, that was a quote from Isaiah, um, all that grossness, why would Jesus say now, um, for everyone was, will be salted with fire? I mean, and, and then all these other words with salt. And so what you're seeing is a very uh, uh, Jewishy thing from, from 2,000 years ago. This is how they talked. And he's using the word salt in all these different ways. And this is a summary statement, believe it or not, for everything that he's just said in Peter's house. This is a summary statement. So here's how we're going to go with it. We're going to start with this first phrase. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, I looked it up. There are three references to salt in Moses' law. You have to put salt in the incense, and you have to put salt on the sacrifices to be offered to God, and it was called the covenant of salt. And so you had to have it in all of your sacrifices. Now, salt was noted for its purifying qualities. So it did double duty. It purified the sacrifice, covenant of purity, covenant of salt, and you were giving pure prayer and pure worship to God, but it also seasoned the meat because in in, in their minds, as that meat burned up on the altar, it was being changed into heavenly meat that would go up to God. And it was heavenly salted meat. It was savory for the Lord. Later, the Talmud actually required that the altar be salted and even the wood be salted that was going to burn the meat. So to the ancient Jew, salt symbolized the incorruptible, purity, speaking of something higher. And so a person's soul was spoken of as salt. The scriptures were called salt, and so is the intellect. So what does it all mean? Well... The disciples were to see themselves as living sacrifices, just as Paul would later write in his letter to the church in Rome. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Where Where did Paul get that idea? Well, he got it from Jesus. And the salt that they would be salted with would be Jesus' teaching, scriptures, remember, scripture, salt, but also Jesus said salted with fire. So that could be one of two things, or I suppose it could be one of a zillion things. But the two things that came to mind were suffering that came from persecution, that could be fire, or the fire of the Holy Spirit, salted with fire, to be living sacrifices. Now the next one, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? I mean, how does salt lose its saltiness? That, that just sounds nuts, doesn't it? Okay, first of all, That is an exact quote from the Talmud of their day. It was a proverb. So Jesus was saying something they were very familiar with. And in Jesus' day, salt rarely came in a pure form. Salt is good, but what happens if it lost its saltiness? Well, if you mix salt with dirt, 
but it's more salt than it is dirt, and you sprinkle that on your food, it still tastes salty, right? I mean, you have to not mind having dirt, but they didn't. But what would happen if the damp got to your salt? What would you have left? And who wants to put that on their food, right? If it doesn't have any salt in it, why would you sprinkle that on your food? So salt could lose its saltiness in that case. And so what was Jesus saying? Well, what does it mean? Be mindful of who you are and how you live. (coughs) Keeping and living by the salt of biblical teaching and keeping in step with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Keep doing that. Because, you know, without that, who are we? Without Jesus, who are we? The last one was have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And that's like, what? How does that even go together? Well, in antiquity, and in some places even today, when people have a housewarming, you bring bread and you bring salt. Why? Well, there was a time when salt was so valuable. I got this from Mari. Actually, my whole family helped with this. This, this takes a village. Um, the um, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's where we get the word salary. Isn't that interesting? So salt was very valuable. So if you shared some salt, what did that mean? Like, who are you going to share your salt with? Any old stranger? How about people you didn't like? Would you give them some salt? Well, I suppose if you were really generous. You shared salt with people that meant something to you, something precious. So what does it mean? To share salt in fellowship, to share the table with each other, to have fellowship and to share something precious, to have warmth and goodwill, to hold each other in high regard. And so the last thing that I want to tell you is that greatness results in being a sacrifice. All of these things that Jesus is talking about are all sacrifices. So instead of arguing with each other, disciples, you 12, instead of being jealous and envious of each other, instead of feeling threatened by a disciple who seems more favored than you, rather than stopping other believers from doing stuff because they just don't do it the way you do or they don't have your special credentials, um, rather than all that, embrace the cross and embrace the resurrection that's going to come. Be humble, honor and value all the brothers and sisters. The disciples were going to have to get rid of their old biases and the old way of seeing things so that they would have room in their heads and their hearts to see what Jesus was showing them. So for you and I today, what old dreams, what old beliefs, what old insistence on the way things have to be do we need to set aside to see what God is actually doing in our lives right now and in our community right now. Thank you, God, for the teaching of your word.